This week marks the 20th anniversary of Kurt Cobain's suicide. So I hope you're ready for a lot of huge, ornate, funereal think pieces and essays about how important he was and how he was the voice of a generation and he was the closest thing to Elvis Presley or John Lennon that we ever got. Um, you know, I just, I don't agree with the hagiography around this guy. Um, I was a massive Nirvana fan when I was a teenager. I was just huge into the band. The guy was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, footage of him at his peak is some of the best rock music that's ever been performed. saw them twice. Um, the first time was great. Second time at Roseland was terrible. He was a mess. He had overdosed before the show, which was not uncommon at that point in 1993. He'd been trying to kill himself for a long time by the time he actually did. One of his, you know, closest associates, I think, is Danny Goldberg, I forget his name, had said, you know, the guy wasn't happy before he was in Nirvana, he wasn't happy when he was in Nirvana, he was just never happy. The things that were written about this guy within months of him committing suicide are absolutely insane. Oh, the poor kid, you know, he had such a tough childhood, you know, his dad wasn't there, he was raised by his aunt or his grandmother and everybody picked on him in school. I mean, come on. Everybody picked on everybody in school. What the fuck? It's just, it's all about drugs. It's all about the fact that this guy used drugs to escape from reality, but also to create a secret. This is somebody who needed to have secrets to feel that there was something else that people didn't know that only he knew. And that's one of the things about drug addicts that um, is just laterally, 100% across the board common. They're all about creating their own secret misery that only they have access to. It helps them feel safe. I mean, he'd been throwing it all away for years. He wasn't a parent, he wasn't there for his child. They both had nannies taking care of every responsibility that they weren't capable of taking care of. Um, so they could keep doing junk. And, you know, it's funny when you read these pieces in, in like this Rolling Stone book and, and all the things that Michael Azarad's written, everyone is looking to say like, and even Steve Albini has said this, you know, people constantly ask him, was Kurt like, you know, drooling on the floor when he was doing the vocals for, for Milk It? What was that like? And Albini's like, he was totally professional. Whole time I was there, never saw him use. Clean, showed up to the studio every day, knocked it out. You know, this is part of the ignorance of dealing with addiction. Heroin addicts aren't like drooling vegetables. It's just not like that. You will have episodes like the Spin photo shoot for the cover of Spin magazine where he's famously nodding out. Look at the way he dressed. He dyes his hair. He starts, he's so flamboyant. And I love that about him. I mean, he's one of the most physically beautiful men that has been like twinned with rock music probably ever. And I mean, that is a huge part of the endurance of Nirvana and Kurt Cobain as a myth, is how gorgeous he was. Equal to that was the incredible power of his voice. And these are the things that are worth talking about. But that doesn't mean you have to excuse the other part of it, which is that he was an asshole. He, he treated people like shit. 
he was, you know, caustic and confrontational. He he called up, you know, he called up every journalist he ever talked to and was like, you know, you can't print that, or if you run this article, you know, I'll fucking kill you, I'll send somebody to kill you, you're gonna get my kids taken away. Dude, you got your own kids taken away. You got your own kid taken away. This is all on you. It's just all these excuses, they have gotta stop. And, and we have to stop making heroes and icons and myths out of people like this because it's just unhealthy. Damon Albarn is currently in the press and has been in the press for the last couple years running the quote, heroin made me incredibly productive. Five days on, two days off. And he's doing a victory lap for the fact that he survived heroin abuse. Like, he could handle it. So that means by example, right? There's gotta be some other people out there that can handle it, right? Look at Zach from Dive and Sky Ferreira's little, you know, Kurt and Courtney thing. Do you really think they weren't in the car together talking like, hey, we could be the next Kurt and Courtney. We could be the next Sid and Nancy. These myths are incredibly dangerous for young people. Because what happens is when your band takes off and suddenly everybody's talking about you, well, you start believing your own bullshit really quick. When people come up to you at shows and they recognize you and they want to ask you about stuff and they start treating you the way you would have treated Kurt Cobain when you were a kid, you lose your compass. You're gone. You're on an ego trip that you never knew anything about until it happened to you. And then that's a big drug too. It doesn't really matter if you end up on MTV, if you end up playing, you know, Rock and Rio or whatever. It's still the same head trip. And if you never leave Brooklyn and everybody in Brooklyn recognizes you, that's pretty fucked up. You know, you can localize fame in that way. But it, uh, it's really dangerous. And it's dangerous at scale. You know, the radio wasn't playing cool enough music. I didn't want to listen to MC Hammer. It was so bad that we listened to EMF and Jesus Jones. Right here, right now, seemed like a pretty revolutionary song. Yeah. If you're told that that's what has to be the soundtrack to to cut and loose as a 14, 15 year old kid, that, that's just not fair. It's not what you want. It's not good enough for you. So that's why Nirvana happened in the way that it did. Because it wasn't just the alternative kids who were, you know, wanted to be accepted and be part of the mainstream. It's that the mainstream kids were so alienated and bored by everything going on. I mean, they were told the only hard music that you can like is slaughter. amount of hype around Bon Jovi's New Jersey. Holy shit. They knew I was insane when I said, all right, the handheld crew should come on the stage now. And women just started crawling up with these short skirts on their cameras. And they, they're looking at me going, wait, you're, you're nuts. You've gone too far this time. 
MTV, when they premiered Bad Medicine, it was like the fucking moon landing. Bon Jovi is back. Ten years ago, I used to work at Kinney's Shoe Store, and uh, I was 16 years old, so I was the low man on the totem pole. And the low guy on the totem pole had to clean the bathroom every week, so I spent more time cleaning the bathroom than I did selling shoes. And one night, it was 9 o'clock, it was closing time, and uh, a concert was on the radio that was live from the Capitol Theater, and I cranked it up, and the assistant manager came running out, you know, and it was like, polyester outfit you know and sort of looked at me and said okay rock star that's it you're fired yeah and that's when like that time was when i first got into like 120 minutes i think in 87 88 that's when you know like i remember all the hype around that album going on and then like the same day bad medicine premieres we were i was psyched because my friend had taped 120 minutes like the night before but that music was never going to cross over that music was targeted at us at a smaller demographic. Nirvana just completely leapfrogged that. And they got all the other people who were so fucking sick of Bon Jovi. And it really is like Robert Plant says in the history of rock and roll. I, I've talked about this a couple of different times. When, he, when I first saw the history of rock and roll and I knew they were going to deal with grunge and Robert Plant said, you know, you know what I think it is? I think it's that you finally got your own punk rock. I was so pissed off. That punk said, we're fed up with Pink Floyd, Jethro Tull, Led Zeppelin, the, the sort of skeleton of the Beatles, let's have some music from the street. And what's happened in America in 1991, 90, is that... I was like, we had fucking punk rock. We've had punk rock since you were still, since John Bonham was still alive, we've had punk rock in America. Yeah, we have, but not socially. It was an option. We didn't have a social revolution the way punk rock was a social revolution in England. And that's what happened. You have to give that to Kurt Cobain. He was the spark that completely overthrew a tyranny of conservatism that was strangling the vitality of teens in America, which is kind of a pathetic thing to say. The youth culture that Kurt Cobain was, was a voice to didn't really have a lot to complain about. Record labels, I've said before, record labels don't give a shit what you want to listen to as long as you buy it from them. So they changed everything immediately. You know, January 92 is, uh, that's what sticks in my mind. We had had Smells Like Teen Spirit on a promo tape, a DGC promo tape that they were giving away at concerts in the summer of 91. So we knew this record was coming and we were like, this song is gonna be fucking huge. Everybody knew that. I mean, 15 years old, we knew that song was going to fucking take over everything. Because everyone that ever heard it freaked the fuck out. We'd play it for football players or friends of ours, and they'd be like, fuck yeah, dude. And they'd want us to, you know, dub them a copy of it, and they'd be blaring it in their fucking Jeeps. It was funny, because usually older siblings who were away at college were the ones who would feed music, cool music, back to us in the suburbs. But this was one that went from us right across the board. And, I mean, we probably heard it before the college kids in some cases because they weren't going to college radio for this. They didn't want this to be another fucking college radio record. DGC wanted Nirvana to go right out of the gates and compete with the Billboard charts. 
they fucking took that one out of the park. Bands had already been huge. The, on the music scene, Nirvana was already famous. Bleach was a fucking huge record in the, you know, 20-something band indie scene. But that none of that got through to the kids who were at the shows, because, you know, you play a show, you're not going to be like, hey, by the way, everybody, thanks for coming out. Don't buy my record. Buy Bleach. You know, something weird happened in January when um, In Bloom came out. I, mean, I don't remember, I didn't like In Bloom, I still don't like In Bloom that much. I don't remember it being a lot of people's favorite song. But when that video came out, it, it was, I, it's like all MTV, I just, MTV just played the In Bloom video nonstop. It, it was like, no matter what, you turn on the TV and that video would be on. And that was the saturation point where it was like, it's fucking over. Everything that has been going on is over. 92, you look at the release dates for some of this stuff, you look at how fast these fucking hair metal bands started playing grunge, changed their whole look, and it is just nuts. Everybody was chasing this. The doors were totally fucking kicked open. And so you get Stone Temple Pilots and you get Pearl Jam, who, yeah, I know Pearl Jam were already a band, and Green River, Mother Love Bone, and all that fucking crap. That was fucking hair metal, funk metal bullshit. Fuck that band. Fuck Green River, Mother Love Bone. That shit was fucking lame when it came out. None of us liked those bands. Those were fucking funk metal jam bands. Anybody who's trying to tell you that those bands were like, you know, proto-grunt. Get the fuck out of here. Those were fucking hair metal bands who didn't have enough money to move to L.A. They're fucking, like, high-fiving each other on the cover. Like, are you kidding me? This was, like, the ultimate fucking bro shit stoner fucking lame-ass jam band Battle of the Bands Music Smith fucking Stratocaster velvet fucking top hat fucking scarf-wearing Paisley bullshit ever. Man, did I fucking hate that band. Ugh. And that was the thing. Like, anybody who came to Nirvana from, like, the punk skater, like, kind of confrontational thing, they fucking hated Pearl Jam. You know, like, Pearl Jam? Girls. Girls. Girls like Pearl Jam. No, I'm kidding. What I meant to say is that my girlfriend liked Pearl Jam. <laughs> you go back and you just, you see how fast they just started just chomping away at the foundation of like Nirvana not being allowed to be the only band that sounded like this. Because if this sound was going to make money, we got to get some people who can fucking stand upright for more than 15 minutes at a time. was the whole reason that all these bands got signed. It wasn't just, we got to find our Nirvana. Because, yeah, all the other labels did have to find their own Nirvana. But everybody had to, like, find a way to keep this going because it was well known that this guy was headed nowhere fast. And the stuff that he was coming out with, you know, a song here, a song there, a compilation track, this and that, it, it just wasn't happening. 
Look at the stuff he wrote at the end. I love the vocal performance on You Know You're Right. I listen to it all the time. It's absolutely devastating. It's just shredding. It's fucking vocal cords are just, you can hear them just tearing apart, right? But you know what? That song is a lot closer to Alice in Chains' Wood than I think Kurt Cobain would have ever wanted to be known for going. And look at I Hate Myself and Want to Die. I mean, it's just, he had totally, he, he, there's a bunch of interviews. If you just go look, there's interviews where he's like, I am so emotionally fucking checked out with this music. It's just whatever. I'm trying to get it done. I'm trying to keep everything going for everybody. And then, you know, he has this big about face where he's like, oh, you know, people are going to maybe take my kids away. This is the happiest I've ever been. I am so happy right now. I've got my kid. I can't. I'm so happy right now. I just feel like everything's really coming together for me right now. And I just, it's such a good time. Man, I wrote this in Mora Magazine. If you go back and read the review, the interviews and the reviews of whatever was going on on that tour in 93, the shit he is selling is just comical. And there is, to its defense, there's one piece in here in this Rolling Stone book where somebody says he feels like Cobain had scammed him. Well, of fucking course he did. He scammed everybody. He was trying to fucking save his family and his future, but he couldn't stop being a fucking heroin addict. So he just goes back to what he's always done, which is fucking lie his ass off. Because that's all junkies do. He's doing it for years. And like I said, Dave Grohl, typical fixer typical support system for a junkie. Chris Novoselic, you know, he tried to have some tough love with him, but you know, he, they were already friends. That dynamic, Kurt Cobain was already the alpha in that dynamic. Those people are never gonna topple an alpha. And C Courtney Love was a fucking junkie too. So how can she be? There's nobody in that structure, in the power structure of Kurt Cobain's life who could top him because there's no parents there. There's nobody to come up to him and tell him that he should be ashamed of the way he's living, that he's going to listen to. They tried the best they could, I think. I do think they honestly did the best they could have done. I don't think anybody could have prevented this guy from killing himself. He didn't have... He had nothing. He had nothing in his social life, nothing in his personal life, nothing in his emotional core that was stronger than his self-absorption and self-destruction and just the kind of, you know, soul gravity that the secret, the, the comfort of addiction can provide for people who have never had a source of emotional comfort in their lives.